Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Do you miss the days when all the answers to life's big questions could be found in the juicy pages of Dolly Doctor? Sex, friendships, relationships, family, life stuff. Dolly gave us total honesty with zero judgment. We learned that it wasn't weird to masturbate, like a lot, and that periods can sometimes be tricky, unpredictable things. We talked about what to do when we had a crush on someone and how to get over relationship breakups. Having Dolly to turn to made all that teenage angst a bit more bearable. Adulthood was around the corner. We would all get our shit together, move to the city to become big-time businesswomen and sleep with Harrison Ford, like Melanie Griffiths in Working Girl. Was that just me? Life was happening. And then we all grew up and realised that everything is still confusing. Welcome to the Big Sister Hotline. Presented weekly by me, Clementine Ford... This is your place to ask all the questions you still don't know the answers to about sex, friendships, relationships, family and life stuff with the kind of frank advice you could expect to find from the person who loves you most, your big sister. Because life isn't easy and sometimes we all need a big sister to call on. Hello, dear listeners, guys, gals and non-binary pals. You're listening to the Big Sister Hotline, a weekly podcast offering frank, funny and feminist advice on all the things that matter. Life, love, and whether or not you should break up with your no-good Nick boyfriend. Spoiler, the answer is always yes. The Big Sister Hotline is recorded on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and the sovereignty of these lands has never been ceded. I pay my respects to elders past and present. Now, when I became a mother, I was suddenly initiated into this terrifying, lonely world of anxiety and tension. One of the things that really helped was connecting with other people going through that experience. I sought out the advice of my own big sisters, as it were, asking them questions in a rattled voice, usually at 3am, my sleep-addled brain needing to know that, yes, it's going to be okay. Honestly, what a time. But they reached right back to me, soothing me and reassuring me that, yes, it is going to be okay. I benefited from their wisdom and their support and it confirmed to me just how important and essential it is to have a strong group of women and comrades around you to hold your hand through the hard times and back you up. And it's a real honour and joy to bring one of those people onto the show today. Emily Wrights is a writer, activist, volunteer and mother of two who lives and works in Aotearoa. Her best-selling book, Rants in the Dark, has been adapted into a play and her second book, Is It Bedtime Yet?, was published in 2018. She's the editor of The Spin-Off Parents and a columnist there, and her podcast, Electric Rodeo, celebrates sex toys and sexuality. She is, to be frank, a fucking hilarious bitch. And she joins me today over the phone as opposed to uh, recording 
on our own separate audio tracks. So if it sounds a little bit different to some of the other podcasts, that is why. But we prevail with technology as best we can. Emily, how are you? Oh, kia ora. Hi. Kia ora. So nice to be here and what a nice intro. It's so nice to have you here. You know that I love you and adore you. and I, I love you. I always wanted to have you on any podcast I did and here we are. And yeah, I always wanted to be on any podcast with you or anywhere. <laughs> it's a loving. You know, Rants in the Dark began as a blog and you're like so many uh, writers of blogs dream of turned into a book. Um, and we are also grateful for that. <laughs> How do you yeah. feel about having gone from – because so often, I mean, the, the whole concept of rants in the dark is in and of itself, it's a, it's a lonely process, you know. It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's the reminder when you're in that moment that it, you feel very alone and – despite the fact that so many millions and billions of people have gone through exactly the same stress and worry and anxiety, uh, which is what makes it such a, the most extraordinary of ordinary experiences, right? Um, But that sense of being alone in the moment was, for me, very profound and oppressive and crushing and terrifying. And yet you've managed to sort of parlay that not only into and, you know, expression of cre- creativity for yourself, but also something that, you know, helps so many other people in your situation or, or in that situation? Yeah, I mean, I think it was... I didn't set out to have a blog or write in that way. That was the first, um, the first piece of writing I did as a parent um, was... I am grateful, now fuck off, which was just essentially just a rant in the dark about, you know, mm. the fucking enormous pressure on 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 mothers to be perfect and cherish every moment and never say that they're tired or, you know, just the silencing tactics mm. put on women um, to just quietly, you know, do your fucking job, mother in private. and don't, All that matters is um, a healthy baby. Yeah, exactly. It's like starts right from birth all the way through how you labour, how those, you know, I found um, I didn't realise right then how my rage and anger about it, I, I still felt like that wasn't necessarily something other, other people shared. I thought maybe there was something wrong with me that I felt such like rage towards, um, you know, the the narrative around mothering. So when I wrote that piece, it was really just, I was going to, I had been sharing writing with friends, um, all of us who were sort of people who like to do creative things or write poetry and things, but were never professional, never shared it or anything. So we just shared it with each other. But then I decided to chuck it up on an um, empty word press blog that I had. Um, there was nothing else on it. It didn't have a name or anything. Mm. And, um, it just, yeah, it had a million hits. I had like 15,000 emails the next day from around the world and I thought, fuck me. And I was really overwhelmed and couldn't, like really overwhelmed at first. I just ignored it for like a week. But then I thought, wow, this is tapped into something. And mm. all these people commenting saying I feel the same and, you know, 
um, I it was really validating for me um, to realise that this wasn't some fucked up shit I was thinking. It was like this was an issue that we were all going through together in the middle of the night on our own and being encouraged to keep that quiet and not ever share it. And so I guess I thought I'll keep writing these little bits that I wrote at night and see what happens. And then, yeah, a year later, Penguin Random House got in touch and said, do you want to make a book? And, I mean, it was, I don't know, it's such a wild journey. Mm. I don't know how to even work out what it all means or anything like that. I just know that it's been really incredible to make this massive network of mothers and be able to talk about this stuff, you know, because it, it kind of happened at a time when with Instagram and other things, people are putting out there this, like, perfect life and where being a mother is almost now, like, this fucked up brand or something online, like, this thing that you can sell and that kind of tapped into my feelings around um, how we treat children and the world and the rights of children and feminism. So I guess it was just a, a marriage in, in itself mm. of two things I re- was really passionate about and found that heaps of other people are really passionate about it too. So, it's yeah, a, it's lucky. A, it's a tricky balance because, um, you know, the public social media side of mothering and and the use of your children because on the I mean I don't share photos of my son or his face rather on social media but I do share stories um never anything that's personal about him just sort of my own kind of reflections or observations about motherhood and in part that is because I have a particular reputation amongst some people and I and I purely want to preserve his safety but also because I have I do have a strong sense that we're in territory that we don't really fully understand in terms of privacy and in terms of children being able to one day turn around and say, well, I, I didn't consent to my entire childhood being on display for, for thousands or tens of thousands or even millions of people around the world to weirdly follow and get some kind of enjoyment out of following at the same time, so I so I feel very uncomfortable about children being incorporated into people's social media, particularly when it's my social media brand is I'm a mother and these are my children and they're all perfectly dressed and here we are having a teddy bear's picnic in the woods that we've you know perfectly curated and photographed, etc. And at the same time, I feel uh, some trepidation in how we discuss that because. For a start, there's no right way for women to talk about motherhood um, because however way we do it, someone will be critical of it because, of course, everyone else always knows better than we do. And also, if you are parenting and say you're – particularly for people who maybe are um, working from home, mothers or staying – I don't want to say stay at home because it's motherhood is work. Yeah. there is a sense of being alone. And so you do want to reach out and connect with other people. So it's this very fine tightrope where how do you balance documenting the reality of your life and the difficulty and joys, etc., of motherhood whilst also being careful not to turn your child into a prop or a brand or 
something that I mean, I I I personally would find it quite unsettling to have people be that intimately aware of my child and his particular enjoyments and etc. Um, and yet, I guess for some, and, and the, as well, I suppose because some women make money from it, there's also that trickiness too because um, there are there are fewer options available to women and mothers in particular to be able to monetize their lives and yet I don't think you should monetize children yeah yeah I mean the complexity of it I find it fascinating I find the rise of um you know money like even the term money blogging Mm. I find fascinating because I get called a money blogger a lot and I feel like you know I'll be introduced as a money blogger before I'll be introduced as um, an author of two books or somebody who's, you know, um, written a play or just any of my other yeah. things that I do. And I feel like Mummy Blogger is really used as this um, way to say to women what you're writing about isn't important, what yeah. you, you know, and nothing niche. you do is... Yeah, like I haven't written a blog for God knows how long. I'm a columnist, but, you know, you don't get called that. Um but at the same time, I do feel like there is I I have a very strong visceral reaction to seeing people do sponsored content um, around their children or dressing their children and selling. Um, you know, to me, it's advertising, and it's also advertising to vulnerable people because mm. new mothers are a lot of the time I felt like I was quite vulnerable as a new mother, like do I need to have this thing or that thing? And um, I think that the if you look at um, what is really popular in this space, it is white, wealthy women like of it who already have um, a lot of it is so problematic around none of this is actually sharing stories or connecting us. It's literally just selling products. Mm. Um, I mean, what I've spent a lot of, uh, you know, I've been doing this for five years now and what I spend a lot of time trying to work out is what is my story and what isn't my story? What Mm. do I have um, consent to share and what don't I have consent to share? And and those boundaries are sort of ever-changing. You know, I spend a lot of time um, at the beginning it felt like quite easy to set boundaries um but as it always changes you try to work out what is okay and what isn't like um I had there's an intersection here with how um with my activism that's why I do what I do because I consider it part of my activism so for me talking about um my son's high health needs is about under, people understanding ableism and understanding what life is like when you have to navigate an ableist world that isn't easy for you to, um, yeah, p- be part of and participate in um, when access is limited because of ableism. But you know, we didn't. We waited until our son was old enough um, we, where we could sit down and have a conversation with him um, about what was okay to share and what wasn't. And you think at seven, does he know what that means? But um, for our seven-year-old, he, when he was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes, he said, I want to share this online. I want to um, raise money for the children's hospital and for type 1 diabetes. 
and he raised about $10,000 and, you know, has done, it bought a lot of, um, it, it has, yeah, it's been a meaningful thing for him. But you try to work out um, what, what does this mean? Is he a character now online? Is he, you know, how does that work? Can he ever fully understand what it means to be online? You know, I think, I don't think that I've ever been able to come up with the right answer, except that I know I have to sit down with my kids and face them and say, and say to them why I shared the stories I did. Um, and for me, it would be about saying your father and I wanted to create um, a, a life, a, like a world that was better for you. And part of that was sharing our stories as parents. Um, and if we cross the line, you know, I, I, yeah, I often get asked that question of like, do you feel, um, how would you feel if your kids were upset that you'd shared things about them online? And I'm like, I'm like any mother, I would hope, um, and that I would be fucking gutted. Mm. I'd be devastated if I, um, you know, had crossed lines or made mistakes and, there are things that I try to do, like I print out every piece of writing that I do and put it in a box as like tangible reminder to myself that the things I'm writing will live on and my children will read them one day. Um, so, but yeah, I just don't know where the lines are and what it means. And it is, as you say, so complex because if we can't talk about this aspect of our lives, um, what does that mean? And also, if your activism is in helping people understand what life is like for um, children or for um, mothers and that type of thing, what's your story and what isn't? And yeah, it's not any, I find the discussion really interesting because I don't know anybody. I certainly don't know that I'm doing it right myself. I just, you're kind of being led by this. Um, well, we're in a, a really strange yeah. period of history as well because no parent before has had to navigate you know, yeah. living a life online. It's really only been in the last 10 years that social media has exploded in the way that it has and that people can see living online as a career opportunity. I think, uh, you know, uh, I'm remembering this from something I read or heard somewhere, so you know, people can look this up themselves. But I think for one of the first times in history children are more likely to say that when they grow up they want to be a YouTuber now than they want to be a firefighter or, a, you know, a doctor mm-hmm. or any other profession that has always been the kind of aspirational ones for kids when they're little. Um, I mean, for me, and we're going to get to the questions very shortly, but for me one of the things I've been grappling with lately is not so much how much of my son's life that I share online, but how much of my life and the way that I perform my work is going to impact him you know, he's only three mm-hmm. now. But in five or six years' time, when people can say to him the things that they think about me, or he might go to school and have someone say, well, your bloody mother said or did that thing. And for the first time in my life, I've really started to think I need to be more considerate and conscious of how I express my anger, of how I express my activism, because this is about something you know the consequences for this for me are what they've always been but the consequences for him are enormous and my first and most important job is to protect him from the fallout of my life 
absolutely and and I think um I that really resonates with me it's why um you know my publishers want um another book and for me my children have reached the age where um I don't feel that I want to commit this to a book right now Mm. like um I don't feel that uh I am very one of my main concerns is that my children will be viewed as characters online and that they will feel that they have to grow into these characters and they won't have space to grow into their own people Mm. um so that's part of the reason why I'm not doing a third book. Um, but it it is something that I really, like I just got a message the other day, like a little bit of hate mail you would have enjoyed, mm-hmm. um, basically saying um, what's going to happen when your, uh, what's going to happen when your kids um, realise that their mum is a slut who loves sex toys. And I'm like, well, I think they probably work that out on their own. <laughs> well, I can imagine as well that you're raising two boys who will respect uh, yeah. the expression of sexuality in positive and enthusiastic ways and won't be afraid yeah. of women being but in touch with their bodies. Exactly, that's exactly it. That, you know, if you have this massive disconnect with who you are online and who you are offline, and I know we have curated lives, but part of what my work has tried to be is to have less filters around what my life is like online and offline and Mm. I have strict boundaries about what I will and won't talk about but I don't um you know I don't clean the house before I can I I wouldn't post a picture of my house so that's a bit of a weird (laughs) example but do you know what I mean like it's it's that this is my life um online and yes it's curated but not to the extent that other lives are and the way well, I, talk I did about it sex and sexuality is how I talk to my sons like I plan yeah. on talking to them about sex toys I plan on talking to them about um the clitoris and where is it and how to you know these are all things that I'm not just doing online that this is part of my life and I'll be talking mm. to the boys about it you know mm. and they'll yeah I did um, enjoy the photograph you accidentally uploaded to your main page <laughs> on Facebook the other day of you with a giant dildo. Whoops. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I was a bit tipsy when I posted that and I was fucking traumatised that I posted that on my main page, yeah, with the massive, like, arm-length dildos. Um, yeah, good time. Um, <laughs> Shall we get on to the questions? Yes, yes, we should. Please note my disclaimer in very big flashing lights that neither I nor Emily Wrights are doctors, <laughs> psychologists or professionally trained sex therapists. We're just two women who've got a little thing called life experience and who love to get ourselves off. In the Closet asks, I am a 25-year-old woman and for as long as I can remember, I have struggled to accept my sexuality. I know I am queer, but I feel so much shame and internalised homophobia and in turn feel ashamed of feeling this way when I know better. I am deep in the closet and the older I get, the more reluctant and afraid I feel to come out. I feel scared by the word lesbian, even though that is what I am. I try to shut it out and keep busy enough so that I don't have time to think about it, but losing my job and staying home has changed that. 
How do I break my own cycle of shame and shake the negative beliefs I reserve only for myself? I feel as though being a quote-unquote late bloomer and having a past with men, I have struggled with compulsory heterosexuality, will put me on the outer of queer world, even though I so desperately want to be in the midst of it. I am afraid of who I am. How do I accept myself? How do others do it? I almost feel like a fraud because I have somehow found myself left behind, even though it's 2020. Oh, that's heartbreaking. Yeah, it really is. I just want to send so much love to that caller. Um, Yeah. That's a question I get sent a lot, Um, actually. I have, uh, when I came out um, as queer, when I was about 31, I think, um, I started to get a lot of messages like this. And, you know, that term compulsory heterosexuality is such a good one because, you know, that's certainly how I felt growing up, even though I'd had... um, partners who were women um it really felt like that was something that um if I talked about or came out I would be um not accepted and there's like not just from outside the community you wonder as well with the queer community you know how will you be viewed that really resonated with me with um what the caller said about that and um I guess one of the things that I'd say is I wish I hadn't spent so much time um, feeling like um, I wouldn't be accepted within the queer community because it was the exact opposite when I did come out. Um, And, of course, I had some sort of gatekeeper comments um, from TERFs and stuff like that. But I think one of the things is how much of a... um, celebration it has been coming out of the closet and how life affirming it has been and how um how much of a beautiful process that it was when a lot of the um narratives around coming out can be really negative um that the idea that if you come out you're going to lose your family you're going to lose your friends you're going to um you know if you're in a relationship lose your relationship but um i felt these you um, narratives around just how joyous it can be coming into your own and coming out. Um, so yeah, I I feel that um, that shame that that uh, the caller was talking about. You know, I have a religious upbringing, so that really um, resonated with me. Um, the things that you would say to yourself that you would never say to other people, and that internalized homophobia and that internalized shame. And um, I guess that what helped me eventually come out was um, realising how chipping away at that those feelings and being more myself in queer spaces, um, that really helped me to realise that, to let go of that. Um, hmm. ugh, I'm not being very eloquent. No, I thought you were being very, I thought you were being exceptionally eloquent actually and, you know, oh. I feel heartbroken reading that message not because uh, because there's there's so much recognition in it. I mean, I came yeah. out when I was 20, 19, 20, I think, and I was fortunate in that I did it, you know, I was at university and so everyone was, everyone's experimenting. Um, I was surrounded by a really supportive group of friends and my parents, my mother was, she struggled with it a little bit, but 
she her approach was just to basically shut down about it and not talk about it and not confront it at all. Although she did she did welcome my quote unquote friend into the house. Um, she was very polite and welcomed her in. My friend. Um, you know, I, and the thing that str- I strongly related to with this question, as you said, was the sense of will you be welcomed within the queer community? And th- part of that is that internalised homophobia of am I queer enough? Am I – because you have this perception of what you think queer people look like. And for me, a lot of that was wrapped up in how much more sexually open they were than I was. And still, I still have some of that that I'm trying to unpack because um, – I wonder if I'm seen as being, you know, not allowed to be a part of things. But that's that's not actually something that is I'm being made to feel. That's something that I'm projecting out. That's a fear that I have of being rejected. And uh, one thing I try and remind myself of, and that I'm I'm certainly reminded of by you know the people that I know who are queer and welcoming and joyful and loving, is that there is no one way to be a queer person. Mm-hmm. You know, queerness is. A political identity in lots of ways but it's also it's a descriptor and there's there's so much diversity in the queer community that um you know you don't have to be uh I think that sometimes people fear that they haven't had enough sex to be considered properly queer you know or they haven't had you know they 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 may oh well I'm I'm essentially a monogamous person am I allowed to be it's all of these these perceptions that we you know, it's that problem of assuming other people's thoughts before we actually co- have a conversation about it or before we accept ourselves. And on this show, over various episodes, we've we've talked about, and it was Jordan Raskopoulos who first brought this up when she was on the show a few weeks ago, the journey towards pride. So rather than the journey towards acceptance, we talk about the journey towards pride. And um, Laura Hershey wrote this in regards to ableism and in, in regards to disability, the, her poem, You Get Proud by Practicing. But I think that that's applicable, and I urge people to go, and it's too long for me to read out on the show now, but it's a beautiful poem, and my friend Stella Young was, uh, you know, uh, this was one of her guiding principles, is that you get proud by practicing. And it does apply as well to um, to coming out and to, you know, I was thinking when you were talking before about we talk about coming out another way that we could think of it is coming up you know we're coming up for air we're coming up into ourselves we're coming up as you know you you know people talk about debutantes whatever like they're coming up in society (laughs) so we're coming up and yeah I don't think to this caller this little sister I think that reminding yourself to be kind to to remind yourself as well that you deserve as much as anyone to be happy and to have relationships that are honest and meaningful and that reflect who you are. And it doesn't matter. I mean, you, you mentioned being a late bloomer. I think that's a fear for anyone who mm. is embarking on a sexual journey where they feel like they're later than everyone else. You know, it, it is frightening because we live in a society that struggles really to talk about the complexities of sexuality and the, mm. you know, the enthusiastic necessity of consent and sexuality and yet at the same time expects everyone to have been initiated into sex in their late teens and if you haven't if you haven't amassed a certain amount of partners by a certain age then somehow you're you're not a truly sexual person or you'll never catch up this idea of catching up you don't have to catch up to anyone you just have to take things at your own pace because your sexuality 
and your experience of sex, that journey is yours and it's no one else's to dictate to you what it should look like. Yeah, absolutely. And I think as well it's around acknowledging the heteronormativity that's all around us. Like there's, it's no surprise that um, we are led to believe that you are heterosexual until you realise you're queer or that you have this, you know, uh, this idea that you are not queer enough because we have uh, the narrative around um, being queer is this is all shaped by a society that's still really homophobic. So the idea if you're going through a phase or um, that you, you know, being queer is the only sexuality like um, being gay, lesbian, bisexual, um, where the view is that you have to perform your sexuality. Like you would never say to a heterosexual person, are you sure you're heterosexual if you haven't had sex or if you haven't had 10 partners or if you haven't, you know, yet queer people often have this um, initiation from people outside the community and sometimes within the community um, where people say, you know, how can you be sure um, have you slept with women? How can you say you're queer if you haven't? I mean, I remember um, with just my journey with my sexuality thinking, oh, well, I am um, married to a, man, a cis man now, so am I queer? And the thing was, I only had girlfriends before him and I still didn't feel like that was enough evidence, mm. so to speak, of being queer. And it's you know, I think that we have to be really kind to ourselves and that, of course, we're internalising this narrative that's all around us that is heteronormative and that says that you have to do all of these things in order to be recognised as um, queer or gay or lesbian. All of these are really homophobic. Um, it, I mean, it's just really homophobic to expect people to um, show their sexual, perform their sexuality for you mm. um, rather than just accepting um, people for what they're saying because these things that are said to queer people are things that would never be said to heterosexual people. Mm. And I think we need to acknowledge, like be gentle and kind to ourselves that, of course, we've inherited or internalised the homophobia that's all around us. I agree. I would also say to this beautiful little sister that, you know, when I see things, when I see in your message, I feel scared by the word lesbian, even though that is what I am. Obviously, that comes from an internalized, the internalized homophobia that you mentioned. But maybe in being kind to yourself, maybe you could de, you could take the sting out of what that word means to you and the, the reality of what you feel you're confronting by reframing it in your mind. You know, I'm just thinking out loud in terms of things that you could do. You could stand, you might not be ready to tell anyone else face-to-face that this is who you are and that this is this is who you want to love. But maybe you could start by telling yourself, and this might sound a little bit twee and cringy or whatever, and it might feel like it when you first do it, but maybe just make a practice every day of standing in front of the mirror and looking at yourself and saying, my name is whatever your name is, and I'm a lesbian and I deserve love and I deserve happiness. And, or, you know, you could like draw it and put it up around your house in places that you feel safe to put it and just just become used to the word and become used to the idea of it. And then eventually maybe you might practice telling a trusted friend or practice telling someone who uh, you know will 
hell, if you want to, you can call me up and tell me on the phone. You know, you don't even need to tell Emily. me your name. You can call Emily. <laughs> Just call us and say, yeah. I want you to know that I'm a lesbian and I deserve love and happiness. And I'll be like, fuck yeah, you do. Congratulations. Yeah. Fuck yeah. Congratulations yeah. on realising that you deserve love and happiness and that you deserve to be accepted and you deserve to be celebrated and you deserve to celebrate yourself. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, I wouldn't get so caught up in, although I understand where it comes from, I wouldn't get caught so up, so caught up in the notion of being a late bloomer or being accepted and, you know, don't put the cart before the horse. Um, mm-hmm. But just give yourself some space and be gentle with yourself and recognise and remember as well that you are about to come up into yourself come up into a community that will be loving and accepting towards you trust me queer people want everyone to be queer so no no one's going to reject you Um, not agree more yeah and you're going to find through this process if you allow yourself that space and if you allow yourself the kindness to fall as well and the kindness to forgive yourself when you're hard on yourself that you will find eventually you will get so proud by practicing that you will look back on this period of time and it will feel really foreign to you. And you will be in a place not only where you can feel love and kindness towards the person that you are now, but you'll feel gratitude for how far you've come and you'll be able to pass those lessons on to someone else. Yeah, that's beautiful. Yeah, I am so with you on that. Good luck. Call us. We're going to celebrate the fuck out of you. (laughs) Frazzled mum writes, I see a therapist and take medication for anxiety and OCD. I read books about self-love and body positivity and I try to eat and live as cleanly as I can. I don't smoke, I don't do recreational drugs and I don't eat food that doesn't make me feel well. I have a young child and a baby and I love them so much. They bring so much joy to my life. Yet I feel angry, a lot. Where has this rage come from? I don't know. All I feel is a deep self-loathing and shame for myself. I'm ashamed of my body. I feel like no matter what I accomplish, I'm still pathetic. Sometimes when both my kids are screaming at me and it's another day with no shower and no space or time to myself, I'll just yell, stop, I can't do this. And I can see they're shocked and scared, which makes me hate myself even more. I try to be as respectful and loving and gentle as possible with my kids. And yet how can I raise them to love themselves when I despise myself so deeply? I pretend to like myself and I'm sure I fooled everyone else. Hopefully I can fool my kids. I'm not a terrible person. I don't hurt people or act in ways that cause much harm. And I try my hardest in everything I do. Why do I feel so much hate for myself? I'm so exhausted and I think if I liked or loved myself, maybe I wouldn't feel so bad, but I don't know how to. I have thoughts of self-harm but I don't do it because I want to be there for my kids. I just genuinely want to feel the love I have for them and my loved ones for myself. Why is this the biggest struggle of my life when it should be the easiest thing? Oh, oh, I just feel for you so much. Um, Oh, I wish I could give you a really big hug, a consensual one. Um, Oh, my heart 
Yeah, there's a lot. I, there's a lot in that question. Yeah. Um, I want to say first that we see you, and that a lot of mothers listening um, here will see you as well, um, and see ourselves struggle, in you. Absolutely, the struggle you're facing is one that other people have faced as well, and um, been over, able to overcome as well. So I want to say from the beginning that there's hope, even though it doesn't feel like it right now. There is hope. Um, I've felt. Um, I've been in the same place as you, um, felt those feelings as well. And um, I want to say that now I'm in a much better place um, in my life than I was. Um, and I, I share that with you because I want you to have hope. Um, there are so many things that you said um, that show that you're going to um, be able to recover from this really deep, intense time. And I I guess I want to pick up on something you said about how this should be the easiest um, thing. Uh, Being a mother, is it breaks you apart. It pulls all your skin off and you are walking around in the world bruised and battered and sore and it's agony being a mother like um, and oftentimes you you know you feel like you can't tell everyone excuse me my skin has been removed from my body and I'm walking around broken and sore because you feel and you've it's been demonstrated to you that their response will be no it's not what's the mm. big deal every, pe- people do this every day and that's the thing this narrative around this is the easiest thing the best thing the most joyous thing um none of that's true it's really hard it is absolutely joyous, but often there are days where you have to literally find the joy. That's been my thing. I have to search around and find the joy because it's not fucking there every day. Like being a mother is brutally hard, mm. especially with um, when we become mothers, there are a lot of things that come up from when we were children that um, we didn't know that were unhealed parts of ourselves. And I guess when you become a parent, you're not just, parenting your children you're parenting yourself all over again and all of those things uh, it's monumental it's the biggest um you know the this trying to care for yourself as well as caring for children and in this you know society that tells you that um the job that you're doing holds no value mm-hmm. at the same time as um trying not to internalize that message that you're not of value so um, I just want to say that um, it, it's brutally difficult mothering, um, even when you have a lot of resources. Um, so I just want to say it first to please be gentle and kind with yourself around that. Um, and then I also just want to say something that I wish I could have said to myself a few years ago when my children were younger, maybe at the same age that your children are, Um I really think that you should tell um, your counsellor or your GP that you need help. Um, and I would really love it if you um, could say to them about your thoughts of um, self-harm. Um, you are not alone in feeling that way. I felt that way. I had a lot of um, suicidal ideation um, when I was um, when I had my second child and I didn't get help as soon as I should have. And so um, I think there's a real stigma um, around uh, 
suicidal ideation and, and self-harm. Um, but I think that is especially true around mothers. And I just want to say that's one of my fears. Um, I'm not going to preempt and assume that this is your fear, um, but I'm just going to share it just in case it's useful to you or anybody listening. But I was afraid that I would lose my family if I said that I was suicidal. I was afraid that um, I might have my children taken from me or anything like that. All of those were fears that were um, unfounded and didn't happen. What happened was I got the help that I needed um, when, you know, but I wish I had have done that sooner. Um, So I want to say that these feelings are not, um, feelings that you need to um, struggle with alone, but they're also feelings that need a lot of attention and help from professional um, people who can help you through that. Um, um, I just like to take that. I just like to take that opportunity yeah. as well, and I'll repeat this again at the end of this segment and at the end of the show. That if you are feeling this way, or if you're struggling with thoughts of self harm, then please, in Australia, please do call Lifeline Australia on thirteen eleven fourteen. And as Emily said, it, it's not there's nothing broken about you for feeling this way, but these thoughts do need to have urgent attention. And and, and I think, sorry, you. Uh, I also want to say to this listener and this little sister that um, you're not alone, even in terms of your diagnosis. I have anxiety and OCD and I've had periods in my life, throughout all of my life, but also the most recent one was at the end of 2019, terrible slumps and, you know, uh, very scary times. And I've written about them and I've talked about them. It's it's tricky to talk about in, you know, because obviously it's it's very raw for people to talk about these things, but also you, you know, you have to, there's so much responsibility that's involved in having these discussions and Emily and I both trying to tread carefully here. But I would also suggest, because this is my experience with me and my OCD, that some of the thoughts that you might be struggling with uh, around self-loathing and your rage may be, may be a manifestation of some of that OCD. The cyclical thinking for me has been uh, one, of the, one of the features of my OCD is the repeated thoughts and the inability to rationalise those thoughts. Um, but on a, but that, leaving that aside, it is also – there's nothing wrong with you for feeling – completely subsumed by rage as a the mother of two young children because it is a rageful thing as Emily said it's a rageful thing to be a parent but also particularly let's be honest to be a mother um, mm. particularly in a world that that provides very little support for mothers and very little avenues for us to even have conversations about the reality of what this feels like you may be feeling rage over a number of different things for me rage came over inequality in the home, um, domestic labour that was unequal, and also just the rage of dealing with a small child, you know, the inability to reason with them, that you want – sometimes you just need to get something done and mm-hmm. you're being – it feels like there's all these roadblocks and you're, you've got no one to talk to about it, no one to help you. I mean, I've written uh, – some things about or I've tried to be very honest in the book that I'm writing at the moment um there's a chapter in there about my son and it's a book about love 
and the different ways that we experience love in the world. And in the chapter about my son, I've tried to be very honest about some of those moments where I feel scared of myself. I feel scared of the capacity that I have for anger and the the pool of rage that I have inside. Mm-hmm. And like you, I've had those moments where I've just lost my bundle and screamed at my son and been terrified of myself in the moment. Not Not scared that I would hurt him at all, but terrified of what he's seeing in me. To an extent, though, and this isn't to excuse that behaviour, but to an extent... As your children get older, this will be easier. There are opportunities to talk honestly about what these experiences are and to reflect on them and to apologise even when they're old enough. I mean, at the moment my son's almost four, so he's capable of understanding when I say sorry. And so I make a a very conscious effort when I have um, lost my shit like that. And I will be honest as well, it happens less and less now because – mothering has reached a different state for me um but you know I apologize I model uh being sorry and I model acknowledging his feelings about what I've said or what I've done and hopefully we will continue that as he gets older because your children can it's okay for your children to see you as a as a human being as well as being their mother it's this this aspiration towards perfection can be so harmful to us that we need to be the perfect mothers. We need to be mothers that deny our emotions, that deny our needs. And that's simply not feasible. I'm not sure if you have a partner in the picture, but if you do, I would also strongly encourage talking to them about the way that you're feeling and telling them that you need immediate support for uh, the, the responsibility that you're feeling as a mother. and You need their emotional support as well. And... Like we said with the last caller, in a different way, I, I just very strongly urge you to practice kindness towards yourself. Yeah, like I absolutely agree with everything um, that Clementine has said there. Um, the, I want to say to you that in 2020, there's never been more pressure on mothers to be everything and to do everything. And on top of that, do it all on their own. You know, we're having this fucked up 50s throwback and it makes me rage, you know, that the way that women are having to um, be as mothers. Mm. Um, So I actually, like, I just absolutely want to say to you that, um, as Clementine has said, our children need to be able to see us um, as human as well. And, you know, just this morning um, I yelled at my son and he yelled at me and then, we came back together almost at exactly the same time and apologised to each other because in my house, that's what it's been like with me, um, with my anxiety um, and the big challenges um, just as a mother. My son understands that and so he comes in and says, I'm sorry that I yelled at you, Mum, at the same time as I say to him, I'm sorry I yelled at you and we are coming together and seeing each other is two human beings who are bumping through life doing best. And that's the message that I want my kids to have. So, you know, um, please be gentle and kind to yourself and and know that, um, you, you know, your kids seeing this, seeing you um, negotiate life, you know, you're learning to be a mum as well. We're not born knowing how to do this. And I still feel that way. Um, 
with a seven-year-old and a five-year-old. And as um, Clementine said about, you know, if you have a partner, this is really the time for them to um, step up. And, um, you know, with my partner, even now we've really recognised that um, I need sleep and part of my anxiety um, keeps me up at night and I really struggle with sleep. So we will often, he checks in with me every day, hey, what's the plan for today? When are you working? When am I working? And when do you need a nap? Can we sort that out? Mm. You know, and that's what it has to be. There has to be no expectation that because you are mother that you need to be doing all of this or that you do it on your own. It needs to be this, these are the resources that we need to be able to parent together. It is not one thing. Um, and I would just say, um, yeah, that I think that that's just really crucial having that support um, available because uh, you're, if, if you have a partner, there's no way they won't have noticed that you are struggling right now. And if they haven't, then that's a conversation in itself as well, yeah. I guess. Um, I'm trying to put that sort of as gently as possible, but I just feel like parenting um you know, Clementine, you can speak to this around um, just when you're parenting alone and trying to work that out. That's a whole different um, thing. But we can't, you know, we have to have our yeah. community around us helping us through this. It's not something that you should be able, you should expect to be able to just do and to do on your own because we're not born mothers. We are learning as we go. Yeah. And uh, practically speaking, some practical things that you can do going forward are if you're not, uh, you say that you're medicated for anxiety and OCD, which is great, but if you're not seeing a therapist regularly, then I strongly advise that. And I, and I think that what Emily said about becoming a mother can bring up stuff about our childhood that we're not even aware of Uh and maybe some of the rage is associated with that. Maybe it's not. But you need a professionally trained person who will help you to get to the bottom of this. And who you can, because this is their job, and, and once you find a good therapist, you can say anything to them and not be – it's it's frightening to talk about some of the, the thoughts that we have and to confront them. But once you do, you can get to fixing them. And just very quickly on the – you know, referring back to whether or not you have a partner, and again, this is for anyone listening – uh, I've been thinking a lot lately about how easily people use that term partner. This is my partner. This is my partner. But what we need to start asking ourselves is partner has a very specific meaning. Partner is someone who is your partner in whatever your life is together. That means that you, there's, there's equality there. That means there's respect. That means that you work together. And if your partner is just someone you live with or someone who you do things for, someone who isn't aware that you're going through this terrible struggle and isn't seeking to help you in it, then they're not being your partner. So we need to challenge our partners to actually embody what that word means and reflect it and be live up to the term of it. But, you know, I really, really feel for you and I we love you we are sending you so much love you are you are not broken you are not there's nothing wrong with you what's wrong with us all is that we live in a patriarchy and these things that in itself inspires a lot of rage but um, there is lots that you can do and lots that you you can begin with and you know there is hope and there is light on the other side of 
this feeling that you're having now, trust me on that. I've been there and you may, you may return to that darkness at some point. I accept that I may return to that darkness, but I keep reminding myself that there is a way through to the light. And you are absolutely not alone. Please know in those worst moments, you know, in the night or anything, look out your window and all those little lights, you know. I used to sit and think there's a mother just like me in there and she's going through the same things. You are not, you are absolutely not alone in this and we walk with you and this whole sisterhood walks with you as well. Please know that this, you're not alone. Mother of Daughters asks, I have two little girls aged one and three. I've been working to heal my own self of the unintended messages my mother gave to me and that society readily reinforced. For example, diets are normal and only exercise if you want to lose weight. Your worth is tied to your relationship. You must make your husband happy, etc. I'm embarrassed to say that it's taken me this long to start to work on myself, to research and test my own thought patterns. I didn't really have the best feminist role models in my life, and as a grown woman, I'm working on that. But it still keeps me awake some nights thinking about the kinds of unintentional messages that I'm probably sending to my daughters. What advice do you have for helping to raise strong, aware girls and not perpetuating the behavioural anxieties and unhealthy emotions tied to self-worth that I've been taught? And as a side question, what accounts as a parent should I follow? Well, firstly, you should follow Emily Wright's naturally. <laughs> Oh, thank you. Um, well, neither oh. neither Emily or I have daughters ourselves, but obviously we have the experience like, you know, this little sister of, of having been socialised as girls in the world. So the best advice I can offer is not how you raise daughters today, but how the things that I wish had been different or done differently with me. Um, so I was raised in a family where my parents loved me, but they also had some really fucked up ideas about, uh, you know, bodies and weight and what made a worthwhile woman. And my sister and I especially were, uh, you know, developed some very damaging ideas about food and how we were supposed to look. And, you know, we lived in a cycle of praise where when we lost weight, our parents would be, you know, so abundantly full of praise for us. And when we gained weight, they were full of stern admonishment. And so we began to associate that cycle of, you know, the, the size of your body indicated how much love you deserved, um, which is a very if, – if I could change one thing about the way that I was socialised to view my body growing up, it probably would be that because that has been a lifelong struggle for me to really unpack and unlearn. Yeah, I mean, I – yeah – I think that this is the struggle for so many of us, isn't it? And I guess that, um, you know, when I think that um, raising children is about, um, you know, we're trying to um, give them the confidence um, to be in this world, this, like what is a quite difficult world a lot, of, a lot of the time. And I guess it's similar to what I said before around um, we parent ourselves again when we become parents and 
for me, um, I'm healing myself and my body image um, as a parent. So mm. I guess I want to say, um, I know this is, you know, something that we've said to, I think, all of our callers today, but it's about being gentle and kind to yourself because there's no roadmap on how to do this. And I think when you're healing yourself at the same time as you're trying to teach your children these messages that you're still trying to clarify in your own brain, like that's huge. And I just want to really applaud you for taking those steps um, that you're already taking. And, um, you know, that is so... That's yeah, you've already put them. The, you've already put them ahead yeah. of the curve because they have a mother really who's really deeply invested in this. I want to go back to, um, you know, something we mentioned with the last caller as well is that that you may or may not have a partner on the scene, but if you do have a partner on the scene, then they need to be doing this work as yeah. well. Yeah. Particularly, Absolutely. I would, I would, I would venture to say, particularly if they're a cis man, they need to be modelling to your to their daughters from you know birth. Not just respect for uh, respect and love for them and for who they are uh, outside of patriarchal messaging, but also strongly modelling respect and love for you outside patriarchal messaging. Absolutely, absolutely. And I think you know, very, I think it's fascinating to me that quite early on people will talk about, um, you know, as a couple before they have children they may talk about oh they, these are things like I might want them to go people will talk about what high school they want the newborn baby to go to before they'll say what models of gender expression mm. are we going to talk about in our home or how are we going to refer to each other or um the you know like there's so many things that we feel uncomfortable um that well I say we but it's just men as that feel uncomfortable about um you know, discussing and right from the beginning, um, my partner and I sat down and, you know, I said it's really important to me, these um, things, but it's not enough to just say, oh, this is important to me. If it's not important to them, then you have a serious issue. Mm. And um, that's something that you have to bridge some way or somehow because just one parent doing this work is not enough. It has to be both of you together um, doing that, you know, I how we model um, our relationship. Um, my partner, my partner and I is really important to me because I want the my kids, um, you know, for their partners in the future. I want them to be treating them with respect, but I also want them to know how they should be treated mm. um, by their partners as well. And if they're not seeing that modelled at home, um, how are they going to know that? And a lot of you know, around um, how we look, how we value each other, um, beauty standards, you know, gender expression, all those things. You know, each day it feels like with children that it's something new you're working out. But if you have this groundwork of this is what is acceptable to us and this is what isn't, but also this is what we feel as parents is really important to us. Mm. Like if we have um, what what New Zealanders will know as a co-papa, which is like a... It's, it's your platform, your views, your um, outlook on life, your kind of, your rules in, in a way of what it means, what's important to you and how you're going to um, go forward. Um, and that's kind of what we did as parents. We said, like, it's important to us that um, 
no matter what the gender of our child, they don't feel like they have to fit into a gender box or um, there was different activities that we got from online to help with things like um, gender and um, all of those things. But you need to have that first framework or that agreement right at the beginning to build on top of that because then you're a team working together to, um, you know, get resources activities you know like it's a daily thing it becomes part of your life to do that but I think that the essential first step is sitting down and saying what's what's important um, and what what are the things that we need um, our children to know and what we need to know as well and how we're going to live our lives and and that can be statements that can be something like I don't want my um, child to ever feel like it could be as simple as I don't want them to feel like they have to dress a certain way according mm. to their gender. You know, that's very basic. Um, but just statements like those, you build on those and it becomes I want them to know that enthusiastic consent is crucial when it comes to um, not just sex but their bodies as children. It's, and it's Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, totally, yeah. totally. And I, I feel like it's strange and, and sad. I mean, it's the way that... It's, it's so all too easy for people to go into parenting without having those conversations because society doesn't have those conversations. Mm-hmm. But it is strange to me that this fo- this huge responsibility, growing a human and then raising them into adulthood and, and being entrusted with their delicate self-esteem and their, their fragile, you know, the chrysalis of who they are, that there are people who, and I'm not saying this is a judgment because, like I said, I, I can understand why some people have never felt the responsibility to have these conversations because society doesn't care about these conversations. But more people need to sit there and go, well, what what is actually involved in that responsibility and what joint responsibility will we have as parents? It, it distresses me sometimes. I receive emails from, you know, wonderful, beautiful women, mothers who – love their partners or love the men that they're raising children with. And they say things like, how can I get my husband to stop, you know, stop uh, shaming my my son? Or how can I get him to stop calling my son? You know, one woman wrote to me and she said that she was really distressed because her husband had called their three-year-old son a pussy. And she said, what should I do? You know, I'm a feminist. How do I respond? And, and I was like, you've got to leave him. But let's walk that back a little bit. If not, leave him. Then you need to really strongly demonstrate to him and get him to do the work on this, on why that is unacceptable. And it's not just unacceptable because it will have a profound effect on your son to have this kind of model masculinity modelled to him, but have also this kind of shame instilled in him. But also this is your child and as, as parents and as mothers in particular, we feel well, I can only speak from the perspective of being a mother, I guess, feel that strong protector instinct. And the last person we should be fielding attacks from is the, other ch- is the child's other parent. We, should, we really need to sit there and think about what does it mean to have a hostile force in the home that we have where we are protecting our children, our, these small defenceless creatures, from the views and attitudes of the, person, the other person that they look up to. Now, I'm not saying that this is the situation of uh, this little sister, but again, 
very strongly urge anyone who is having these conversations with themselves about how can they raise strong daughters, how can they raise gentle sons, that yes, have these conversations with, you know, women like me and Emily and with your friends, but also have these conversations with uh, anyone you may be raising those children with or uh, whether or not you live together or not. Yeah. And I mean, I think, you know, often I've said um, similar and people have said to me, oh, well, um, your husband is a feminist. And I'm like, I don't know where you got this <laughs> idea from because um, my husband was um, a tradie. And he was raised all by women, which I think helps him to have the attitudes that he has. But I distinctly remember when um, our son was born and um, started to... Uh, you know, when when he before he could speak, he started to gravitate towards um, tutus and um, you know the kind of a lot of the mums who contact me are saying things like, "Oh, my husband gets upset when my son wears a dress or a tutu or blah blah." Um, and my husband was like taken aback by that. He'd expected to have this mini me um, boy who wears black and you know his little Pantera t-shirt that he bought or whatever. You know, like he thought he would have a mini me kid like him who would be the same as him and um, when that happened when our son started to um, really clearly become his own person um, that was confronting um, for my husband it wasn't what he expected but the difference was he didn't pull any of that shit he came down and sat down with me and said well this is like I'm, I'm a bit stressed when I see him in a tutu and so, like, I sat down and we're like, let's unpack this. And he was like, I feel like he's going to get bullied. Mm-hmm. And we're like, okay, well, let's unpack that further. You know, how, why does he have to carry the responsibility of other people's actions? And, you know, we worked through that. But the difference was that um, my husband, like, it's about you saying that you're the fucking adult in this situation. Sorry. I get quite ragey about this I thing get it. because I just feel like um, – you know, we provide so many excuses um, for men like, oh, they're not used to it. They're like, you know, they're just worried about this or that or it's just so different for them. And it's like, no, you're the adult. Mm. Be a fucking adult. You chose to have a child and having a child together means that you don't get to pick and choose um, who your child is, who they're going to be and that type of thing. And you don't get to work through your fucking issues on your child. You take it away, you process it, you unpack it, go to counselling, whatever, um, but you don't get to work through that with your child. You don't get to have extra chances to just work out how you're, you don't, it's not your child's problem that you are struggling with accepting um, things outside gender norms or, um, and also I think you know, we, any of those things. Yeah, we should also have faith that I mean one of the ways to break those patterns of thinking is to instill really strong self-esteem in our kids and which isn't to say we'll just like throw them you know like throw them to the bullies throw them to the wolves but we're not actually empowering them in any way if we teach them to recognize the things about themselves that people will pick on as being worth picking on you know as being shameful Mm. whereas a child with incredibly strong self-esteem and the support of loving parents, the support of a home that creates safety and softness for them. Uh, I'm not saying that it makes going through bullying easier, but 
at least they know they've got people in their corner and they at least they have some strong sense of self too. Um, in regards to, you know, raising girls in particular, uh, I think that making sure that you – I mean, maybe write, write down a list of all the things that you would have liked different, liked to be taught differently as you were growing up, all of the things that you remember, you know, so often we might sort of remember things and go, well, it wasn't that big a deal. And it's like, cool, well, why do you remember it if it wasn't mm-hmm. that big a deal? So write down all the things that you think had a profound and negative impact on you and and say, what can I do to ensure that doesn't happen? And then reflect on the things that you thought had a positive impact on you, the things that you liked and say, well, I'm going to model some of that. And I guess you know, recognize as well that it's a process. Everything is a process. Um, parenting is, you know, as parents, we, one of the biggest kind of shocks to me, and it's such a cliche, and I'm sure you feel the same way, Emily, is realizing, oh, fuck, my parents had no fucking idea what they were doing. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. You know, and we make and mistakes, I- and you've got to forgive yourself for making mistakes, but don't excuse your mistakes. Forgive yourself and, 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 and commit to being better. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, it's, I think that that's especially true with, you know, um, my, you know, how I feel about my body. It's really hard mm. to essentially fake it almost around my kids because um, it's easy to, fall, I have fallen in that trap before of my kids walking in and seeing me standing in front of a mirror, you know, feeling like, oh, fuck, you know, like, and then, you know, you are essentially with all parts of being a mother, it's fake it till you make it. Mm. You know, you're just trying to work out the right way to go and going that way. And um, I think that that's a really good idea um, that you said, Clementine. And I think as well, I would say, think of all the things that you wish had been said to you as a child. Like, um, I love you exactly the way that you are. Like, mm. there's nothing you have to do to make me love you. There's um, no conditions on my love for you, and how you um, are is exactly who you need. Who you need to be, you know. These are things that I say to my kids all the time, in the hope that I'm building resilience in them, like like you said, Clementine. Um, but also that um, I'm healing myself, and that helps me be a better mum as well. That helps me um, mm. with my. Um, with doing that really essential work of feminism of like parenting in a way that provides freedom to our children. There's Um, something really powerful about shifting your focus to look at yourself the way that your children look at you you as opposed to, and also recognizing your face and your child's face, the most beautiful face that you've ever seen in your life and thinking that's my face. Maybe I made that. Um, and just before we finish, the last thing as well that I'll say, it's, it's not parenting accounts, but actually I think it would be really powerful for you to follow some body positivity um, and body celebration Absolutely. accounts on Instagram. You know, maybe flick through them with your daughters. Uh, some of the ones that I love are um, Katie Parrott, uh, Ali Garrett, Flex Mommy. Uh, and when you, the good thing about the algorithm is that once you f- start following them, then you'll have others suggested to you. And just Absolutely. just surround yourself with a diversity of bodies and a diversity of opinion you know women who speak their mind and all sorts of different kinds of women as well don't just don't just seek out women who are like you um yeah so it's not so much about parenting but about you know this is what women can be this is what 
you know, follow some, follow Wild Fang because they've got some fucking great suits on their site, you know. Um, yeah. But yes, all the best. And, and I think from the outset, it's wonderful that your one-year-old and three-year-old daughters have a mother who is consciously thinking of these things already and hopefully has a partner who is also consciously thinking of these things too. You've been listening to the Big Sister Hotline, a weekly advice podcast that delivers no-nonsense words with love from the kind of people you know have your back, your big sisters. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podchaser, Google Podcasts, and everywhere else you look for great content. And you can also listen to all the back episodes. If you like the show, then please consider rating and reviewing it because every bit helps. You can send your questions to bigsisterhotline at gmail.com and you can also support the ongoing making of the podcast at my Patreon, which is www.patreon.com forward slash Clementine Ford. My guest this week has been the fantastic Emily Wrights and Aotearoan writer, activist and sex enthusiast and all-round f- font of wisdom. Emily, what's up next for you apart from enjoying uh, a very big celebration in <laughs> in, uh, in a room full of people? Yes, yeah. Um, oh, this has just been such a joy to be on the podcast with you. Um, I am just, yeah, looking forward to slowly clawing back <laughs> some freedom and you know um I really want to go dancing that's all I care about right now I'm just (laughs) waiting for Jacinda to tell us we can go dancing so yeah and then that trend has been bubbles so I can come over and visit you (laughs) wonderful and I'm really looking forward as well to Rants in the Dark making its way to Australian stages uh everyone out there you can buy Emily's books uh Rants in the Dark and also Is It Bedtime Yet um and I really strongly recommend that you do that and also listen to her podcast Electric Rodeo because we didn't even talk about sex toys today but uh, (laughs) I'll tell you what this woman recommended one of the most amazing glass blowing toys for me that I've ever used used and it is a winner remember there's no topic too thorny and no question too weird for the big sister hotline we're here for all the questions you don't want to ask your therapist especially now that it has to be over zoom so contact us instead the big sister hotline the phone lines are open Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.